1: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, comedian Aparna Nancherla talks about her new memoir, Unreliable Narrator, which is about imposter syndrome, among many other things.
2: Look, my navel is a portal to your navel. You know, like everyone, everyone loves to find out more about themselves.
1: But first, it is our chance to sit back and relax from the week that was with two excellent humans. With us this week is the host of the podcasts In the Cards and Dead Eyes, Connor Ratliff. Connor, hello. Hello. Also here is Bridget Todd the host of Citycast DC and there are no girls on the internet. Bridget, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me back. I'm I'm so thrilled to be back here again.
1: Yay. Okay, so let's start with this Barbie situation. Mattel of course lots of marketing this year including a whole ass movie. Their latest release is a Stevie Nicks Barbie. It's part of a series of musicians including Tina Turner and David Bowie. Y'all, I am tired. What do you think of this? Like I don't, is there anyone who you'd be actually excited to see in Barbie form? Connor, what do you think about this situation?
4: Well, when I heard this, the first thing I thought of was uh, back during the year that uh, Thriller came out, I mm. got a Michael Jackson doll that was basically, it wasn't Mattel, but it was basically the same size and, and scale as a Barbie doll. Uh-huh. And then when I got a little bit older, that became a hand me down to my sister, and Michael Jackson just became part of her. Barbie world with all the other Barbie (laughs) characters. So it does. I like the idea of expanding the Barbie verse to include, uh, uh, notable musicians. That's very true.
1: That's very, I mean, I do feel a little conflicted about like the Michael Jackson of it, although I do have to say,
4: I mean, it's complicated, but, uh, it's a complicated world. And that's one of the things that the Barbie movie so eloquently (laughs) unpacked is that there are no easy (laughs) answers. (laughs)
3: Beautifully put, Connor. What do you think, Bridget? (laughs) I mean, I'm with Connor here. I love to see an expanding Barbie universe, if you will. (laughs) I actually badly wanted to buy the, um, when they made the doll of the director, Ava DuVernay, I was like, Mm. I have to have that. I grew Mm. up in a Barbie house. My mom collected Barbies. I, I love Stevie Nicks. The one thing I will say about this Barbie doll is that when I saw a picture of it, I wouldn't have clocked it as... A Stevie Nicks Barbie. I'm curious Mm. what y'all think, but I don't know. I love Stevie Nicks. I love Fleetwood Mac. I think she has an ethereal, witchy, delightfully messy quality about her. And I don't feel like a Barbie doll can adequately represent that.
1: That's fair. I mean, I do think so. The the clothes she's wearing are essentially from the
3: Rumors album cover. She's got the bell sleeves. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I wouldn't mind seeing a Tusk era Stevie Nicks Barbie doll. <laughs> if we're gonna, if we're get, getting into the albums and the eras,
4: yeah, I, I, I like the idea of there being a great many Stevie Nicks Barbie variants to the point where you, could, your whole collection could just be Stevie Nicks.
1: <laughs> There's just like dozens of Stevie Nickses. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. do kind of love that. It seems like she'd be pretty stoked about that too. Oddly enough, um, okay. So the next story I want to talk about is horrific. It's about bed bugs in Paris. The NPR story about this used the phrase blood sucking bed bugs, which like I just don't need in my life. Uh, they are all over France, including public transit. They're at the airport. Officials are calling this a public health issue. Of course, also Paris fashion week just wrapped up. So the cut is predicting some French bed bugs in New York. Uh, Connor, you're in New York. How do you feel?
4: I mean, I fortunately knock wood, uh, uh, and and hope that the wood isn't already infested with bed bugs. <laughs> um, uh, I I I really I really hope that New York doesn't have a, a, a new wave of bed bugs. I anyone that I know who's ever been infested uh, is, is still traumatized by it. You know, uh, yeah. I once went on a tour with a, a friend of mine, Don Finelli. And we were going on an improv tour and we were sharing a hotel room and he had just been going through the whole bedbug thing, This was uh. many years ago. And he was so paranoid about every surface, everywhere he went. You know, oh he, we, we got into the room, he immediately put all of his luggage in the bathtub. And it was just like, he'd been driven to distraction by it. So I, I know I would not handle it well. I, I hope that they're wrong. I hope that fa- that is not what uh, Fashion Week' uh, uh, is main trend is this year.
1: Ugh, it just sounds so awful. Aparna actually, in her book, has a she talks about how there, there was a period of her life when there were fleas in her house, and even she described it as feeling gaslit. Partly because you know that feeling of like, wait, is that an itch? Like, I uh-huh. feel like itchiness more than almost anything else is like your brain can just become so hyper fixated and paranoid about it. It's like, how do you ever live a normal life after?
3: That? Yeah. This is where I have to, I mean, I don't even know if I should admit this. I have had <gasps> bed bugs once before in my, oh my life. God. And everything y'all are saying, I can confirm. It Ugh. drives you, it's it's almost like a psychological torment. Um, Mm-mm. you know, I had to have my place, I live in an apartment, I had to have my apartment like heat treated. Um, it was <sighs> And yeah, I, I when I travel, the first thing I do is I, I check the bed. I would never oh have a God. fabric headboard, but at least like I will say this: I am. I almost feel a bit lucky that I had them when I did, because back in the day, if you had bed bugs, you basically had to like leave town in shame. At least we have treatments <laughs> today. Like, but it used to be like fifteen years ago. If you got bed bugs. It was like a like a social stigma and you had to be very ashamed
1: oh my god that's really funny well the thing about like this npr article uses the phrase um like insecticide resistant which i find deeply alarming oh god right i mean that's a thing about these days that i guess would not be good what was the heat treatment like because it is part of me is like oh yeah no if Once you have, like, you just have to burn it all, you know?
3: Basically, yeah. So when I got bed bugs, (laughs) they were like, you have two options for treatment. One is we come to your house and we soak everything in chemicals. Two is you leave your house for, I think, 48 hours and we heat your entire home to a, a, a heat that is like, I guess bed bugs were not supposed to be able to live. I, this was wow. a couple years ago. So I don't know if maybe these they're making bed bugs different, and now they'd be just like <laughs> chilling. They'd be having a nice tropical vacation <laughs> when you came back. Um, but it did it did work. And like when, when I tell you, like it changes you. You for months after, if like a <sighs> tissue touched my leg, I'm like bed bug. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you 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 can never relax again in your own home.
1: Oh my god! So, so you still would say you are not fully recovered? Is that a fair assessment?
3: That is fair. I mean, I still just, just like Connor's friend, when I, I still, you know, I still carry the legacy of that, that bedbug trauma. But something I do want to add to make sure, make sure to add in this conversation: having bedbugs does not mean that you're dirty. It does not mean that you're like. I think that, like, there is a stigma that, like, oh, if you have bedbugs, you're dirty. They had them at, like, Bergdorf Goodman in New York, right? Like, they they can wind up in, like, really fancy places. They can be Uh, anywhere. No one is safe.
4: It could be a sign that you're very fancy. Yes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: especially, you know, you have les bedbugs françaises. I mean, how cool is that, I wonder if
3: French bedbugs are... (laughs) you know like more refined they're judging what you wear mm-hmm. they're smoking cigarettes they
1: don't shave their armpits for sure yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay
1: so the last story i want to talk with y'all about is um actually from a woman in the chicago area who is 104 years old and she skydived this week skydove i don't know it makes her the oldest person to jump out of an airplane with a parachute I don't think I would ever want to do this. Bridget, you, are you like slightly more inclined?
3: I'm a little inclined. I think when I really got up there, I think I'd be that person that can't make the jump and has to t- sadly fly back down without jumping. I think <laughs> once I was really up there, I don't think I could actually make the jump.
1: Oh my gosh. So Connor, is there something that you have thought about? Like if you did make it to even a hundred, like, is there a thing you would want to do to, to celebrate that that wouldn't involve jumping out of an
4: airplane? Oh, I don't know. When I think about trying to be that old, uh, mm-hmm, right? I, I, I autom- I'm i already so tired. Just, I want to do something <laughs> no. ni- nice and relaxing, something peaceful. I, I Maybe can't, sleep forever. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that jumping out of a, an airplane would be any more pleasurable than like fighting an alligator. You know, just like it just sounds horrible <laughs> to me.
1: Yeah, I think it sounds really bad too. Bridget, is there? Do you have like a when I hit this age, I'm going to do this thing? For you, I
3: think if I if I make it to like 105, I might mm. become like a fancy cat burglar and start oh. like go. Like I feel like if you're that age, people are like rooting for you, you know. So maybe that's what I'll do.
1: Wow, that's delightful. But I I feel like you need a little more mobility, probably.
3: Well, nobody's going to suspect the old lady with the walker, you know. <laughs>
1: Maybe for me, it'll just be like Molly. I've never done Molly. Maybe that's oh. the, maybe that's my chance.
3: It sounds great. I think more older folks <laughs> need to be experimenting with hallucinogens for sure. Right? <laughs>
1: well, I appreciate both of your support. <laughs> Connor, Bridget, thank you both so much for coming on. This was too much fun.
4: Thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Right after the break, we are going to talk to comedian Aparna Nancherla about her new book, Unreliable Narrative. Our next guest is comedian, TV writer, actor, podcast host, and now author, Aparna Nancherla. Her new book is called Unreliable Narrator. It is a deeply personal memoir that covers a lot of ground. It's about anxiety and depression and sex and social media and anger, especially female anger, especially marginalized female anger. It is also a well-reported examination of the systems, both visible and invisible, that impact all of us, whether we like it or not. And of course, it still manages to be funny. Aparna, welcome to the show.
2: Hey for having me. What a nice intro. And uh, when you said podcast host, I was like, wait, really? I have a podcast. <laughs> you <laughs> do. then I remember you do. <laughs> I, I just hosted a series. I mean, that counts, right? Yes, yes, of course.
1: <laughs> so the framing of this book starts with the idea of imposter syndrome, which you define early on. And I think we should do the same. Can you tell us what it is and kind of how it has shaped your experiences?
2: Sure. Uh, for me, imposter syndrome Um when I was researching the book, it came up to mean like a a set of feelings that kind of encompass just feeling like a fraud around any success or achievement you've had. Like just mm. feeling like you don't deserve it. It was all a fluke or luck. And just having this persistent um, worry that other people are going to find out that you have no idea what you're doing and don't deserve any of the things that you have quote unquote gotten. Mm. It's funny because
1: at first glance, I would consider myself not someone who deals with that. But when I really think about it, like I do, you know, live event moderation Mm -hmm, now and then. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my biggest nightmare is the idea of sitting on a stage with someone and like not having prepped well enough and having them turn to me and be like, who the fuck do you think you are to be here asking (laughs) me questions right now? Which like, I'm pretty sure is exactly the bucket that you were talking about.
2: (laughs) Well, it's it's funny because I learned in writing the book that If you if you suffer from like imposter like feelings, it probably means you are not an imposter because Mm. actual imposters do not struggle with that. They're usually kind of, you know, drinking their own Kool-Aid and that kind of is what sells the whole thing more. So the fact that you're worrying about it is probably a sign that you are qualified to be in whatever position you're in. Beautiful. I'll take it. It's funny, I mean, and you talk about this
1: briefly in the book too, but like I can't not ask about the irony of having the audacity to be the person to write a whole ass book about <laughs> imposters.
2: I know. And I even said in the book, like I wrote about it in the hopes that I would get to the bottom of mine and fix it. And mm-hmm. I feel like in writing it, not only did I not fix it, but I if anything, like gave myself doubt more of a platform internally, which is <laughs> Not the move I was hoping to make. Uh, But yeah, I think if anything, it it has brought up the feeling of like, oh my God, you thought you could write a book about this? You fool. Like it's just only compounded some of the feelings, but you know, more, Mm. more, uh, more to get out of therapy.
1: Well, also though, like you did write the book. I mean, how does it, does it feel any different now that it's like out in the world and people are reading it?
2: Yeah, I think it feels, and maybe it, this is with any act of creation, uh, mm. not to make myself sound like a God, but I <sighs> uh, I think anytime you put it, anything out into the world, you have to let go of it a bit in that mm-hmm. you never know how it's gonna be received or you know what feedback you're gonna get. So I have had to distance myself a little from it just because it is so intensely personal. But uh, but yeah, it is a, a little surreal too, because it took me three and a half years to write. And the fact that it's like a physical object now or like a actual thing is still hard for me to fathom because there were just so many moments of being like, I will not be able to finish this. Well, I
1: think it's also, I mean, it's such a personal book. It's also really in support of like the idea that we need to be better at making room for our more
2: chaotic selves, you know, which is so much easier said than done. I know. And it's hard to even because it feels like often when we bring some of these conversations online or on social media, it's like they just inherently get flattened in a way that Mm. turns into like a soundbite or a meme or something. And, And it is, I think the point of my book is in some ways arguing that we can't flatten everything because we're Mm. we're just more than like the digitally curated versions of ourselves even even the quote-unquote messy ones so I yeah I think it just uh bears witness to the fact that a lot of this unpacking has to be done like you know with other people or just like with um sources that we trust and and feel like Room to be um maybe contradictory versions of ourselves or or parts of ourselves that haven't fully figured out, you know, where we are at on certain things.
1: Yeah, I really love the the like haven't figured out where we were fully at with thing because I feel like this book is not like, here's a tidy bow, I put on all the messy parts of myself. You know, like you even have this phrase, it's really lovely, the fickle irresolution of life. Like I think you really are acknowledging like, yes, I am in the process of unpacking, you know?
2: Yeah. And it's sort of uh, to that point, an ongoing process. Like uh, I think I turned 40 last year and I think I, I, for me, that felt like the first moment the end was conceivably in sight and kind of realizing that oh a lot of these things are probably never going to be fully figured out and and Mm. part of life is just being in that process and being okay with the fact that it is a process and there is no you know end besides the like finite end that we all get um and being okay with that kind of being like yeah we're all we're all kind of these weird mobius strips that never quite like make sense like we kind of get lost in our own uh yeah path Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's
1: it's it's beautiful I think it can be really frustrating at times of course too but I think there's something really lovely about about what you've come up with here you know
2: oh thank you I mean I I as someone who lives very much in my own head it's like so nice to just hear anyone resonating with it because I think that is part of the reason I like to write and, and put myself out into the world is just to remember that other people are maybe having very similar experiences and I'm just not seeing it because I'm too lost in my own yeah journey and, and remembering that we're all kind of like at these different way stations in our own journeys and like finding where those intersect with each other.
1: Yeah, totally. I think one thing that really spoke to me in your book was the idea of like how difficult it can be to listen to your gut and to follow your intuition when you're also dealing with depression and anxiety. Because it's like, you know, it's like, is this my, is this the weird brain telling me this stuff or can I trust my gut with this?
2: I know. And knowing like what is a distorted version of your thought versus yes. like, yeah, like the quote unquote good version or the healthier version. Um, yeah, I mean sometimes I have to uh, make that distinction of it's like do I not want to go out because I'm depressed or because I need a night to recharge and stay in and and sometimes I like yeah. make the wrong call and and mm-hmm. I think that's that's okay. Um we're all we're all trying. I think especially as an introvert, it can be really
1: tough to like is this recharging or is this wallowing? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. And I think society is quick to be like, It's wallowing, come on out, join the party, you know? And so yeah, trying to trying to make those distinctions between like what is what is society being like, why don't you fit into this one cardboard mm-hmm. cutout of what we want a person to be versus like where where does my actual self fit into that? Yeah, I can come to the party, but I will cry. At the party. <laughs> yeah, or I will cry after or I will just, yeah, not be there in my head. So you also talk a lot about like how deeply
1: anxious you get before doing stand up. And I would love to talk a little bit more if you're up for it about like why you still do it.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I was talking about another I was talking to another comedian about this recently and we were both like, yeah, I don't. I don't know how to answer that question sometimes because it is one of those things where I do it and it provides a release and some sort of like small absolution in in those uh, certain performances where you just feel like you're in the zone and you're really connecting. But then there is also uh, definitely a trade off on the other side of just like, you know, feeling maybe overexposed or just like misunderstood in a way um, that is hard to to capture because it's such a specific medium. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's like that high everyone talks about where you're just like always chasing it. But but I think it does offer me some kind of catharsis in in doing it that I find hard to access in other parts of my life. Mm. I have said this on Nerd before, but one thing
1: I sort of like half fantasize about is just like working at the post office. Oh, yeah. Like- Like having a chill ass nine to five where I like, you know, spend some time outside, deliver mail. And then like once the clock, once I clock out, I don't have to think about my job at all until I show up the next day again, you know, which is like, of course, never going to happen in journalism. (laughs) (laughs) What is there like a chill ass job
2: like that that you daydream about now and then? Oh, yeah. My uh, I think my go-to like backup fantasy is like moving to a small town and working at a bookstore. And, Ugh. and I have to like not let myself get, you know, fill in too many more details after that. Cause then <laughs> it will quickly be like, oh yeah. And then you'll go home and you'll be like, but what's the point of all of this? And like, you'll <laughs> still have the same brain. So you can never escape that. But, but yeah, like the idea of it is so idyllic to me of just, yeah, like a very, like, I don't know, rom-com little bookstore small town mm so i mentioned i mean you did a fair
1: amount of reporting through this book is was there like i'm curious if there was a particular takeaway that you found particular particularly surprising over the course of writing it
2: yeah i mean i I <laughs> that's so nice of you to call it reporting because I, I I tell people I wrote like basically a book of like journalism fan fiction where it's just like <laughs> I like the books of essays I love are all like you know your Gia Tolentino's and like your your like actual reporter and like you know essay writers and then I was just like this is my version you know my like Fifty Shades of Grey to their Twilight or whatever um <laughs> so that's very kind of you to say, but yeah, I feel like in the end, I was just like really leaning into to my undergraduate psych major, which is just like, oh, I like psychology because it's um, secretly just a way to study yourself. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so all, the, all the facts and figures were just in service of me further gazing into my navel. I
1: mean, I don't know, though. I still think people are going to get stuff out of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, my navel is a portal to your navel, you know, like everyone, everyone loves to find out more about themselves. And sometimes the best way to do that is through reading about other people, weirdly enough.
1: Aparna, thank you so much for coming on. This was a really delightful conversation.
2: Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me. What what a pleasure.
1: That's it for this week. In case you missed it, I would like to highlight that we have a delightful interview with Lauren Groff in the feed about her newest book, The Vaster Wilds. That is our October book club selection. So take a listen to the spoiler-free interview, read the book, and then share your thoughts with us. You can record yourself on your smartphone and email the file over to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. We love when you participate in book club. Also, just to give you a heads up so that you can participate, our November selection is Land of Milk and Honey by C. Pam Song. It is out in the world. So go get that one too and get reading. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR network. And our executive producer
0: is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.